So this past week we had Valentine's Day, and I want to tell you, it was, I want to really actually esteem, some of you actually went with biblical-themed Valentine's Day cards. Always a good choice. On Wednesday night, I actually uh, saw this card here. It's King Solomon goes card shopping on Valentine's Day. He says, yeah, I've got 700 wives and 300 concubines, so you better give me a thousand of these. And he's made his selection be my one and only, okay? So I'm, I'm really glad to see that Ecclesiastes and its author Solomon is playing such dividends in your life. And I'll tell you, for Solomon, when he walked away from God's wisdom and he'd start to go on his own program and he was driven by his own lust and he found himself with a thousand wives and girlfriends, I'll tell you what, his life became exponentially complicated. And that's how it works. When you decide, hey, listen, you know what? I'm going to put God on the shelf, and I'm going to do my own program, and I'm going to go my own ways, and if I feel like it, I'm going to do it. You are going to make a disaster of your life. In fact, Solomon records his experiences in this book, the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you put God on a shelf, you're going to come to the exact same conclusion and say, you know what? Life is vanity of vanities. It is all meaningless. And that is until you come to a place where you are once again trusting God. And he is your hope and your rock. There is a reverence toward God and a desire to walk in his ways and to be a service to him. Now, in life, you can learn life's lessons the hard way or the easy way. And some of us have paid a lot of tuition and have a lot of painful memories of learning life's lessons the hard way. And I'll tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. But Solomon had to learn it the difficult way. But there is a better way, and that is to immediately go to God. If you have come to a place where you need divine intervention in your life, maybe that's why you're even here now. It's like, I am at the end of my rope. I, I absolutely made a mess of things. I need God, and I need His ways. I got a very simple question that will be transformational for you. Just ask this question. Is it wise? Before you make a decision, before you go off and do your next little thing or follow after your feelings, ask this question, is it wise? Is it wise when you consider God's glory, your present commitments, uh, your life, your legacy? Is it wise when you think about your past experiences or your responsibilities or your hopes and your dreams? This one question, I can assure you, God will give you an answer, but you've got to ask it, is it wise? And that's what we find when we're coming to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10. We're going to find wisdom is actually put in front of us. And it is contrasted against the foil of foolishness and folly. In fact, nine different times in chapter 10, you're going to find foolishness or folly. And what he is trying to do is, by contrast, showing you that you want wisdom and you need to forsake foolishness. And why is it that we need to want wisdom and forsake foolishness? Well, that's what he's going to show us because wisdom is how you and I walk in the joy of God. God wants you to enjoy your life. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to experience fulfillment, meaning, and purpose. And that is not possible apart from him and his wisdom. So let's take a look at it. Why do we want wisdom and we want to forsake foolishness? What does it look like to live life with skill? Well, first of all, chapter 10, verse 1, wisdom brings strength. He begins, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and 
honor. You ever heard that phrase, there's a fly in the ointment? This is where it comes from. You see, it's just a little thing that can create a huge stink in your life. And what he's trying to show is that it's really on the heels of verse 18, chapter 9. It doesn't take much to destroy what is good. Remember what he said in verse 18, chapter 9, wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. You see, a perfumer's oil, perfumer's oil was very costly. It took a lot of skill to actually create it. But it only took a few dead flies to wreck it. Now, what would be some of these dead flies? I mean, if it's far easier to ruin something than it is to develop it, what would be some of these dead flies? Well, first of all, a fly could be a person. It was in verse 18. It could be someone who is out of sorts with God. They're on their own agenda. They're sinning. And they might have a veneer of holiness or religiosity about them, but they really are about themselves. And they can create all sorts of havoc, whether in their family, in their, at their work, in their church. And he is saying, you know, it might be that a dead fly that's causing a stink in the place could be a person. But it also may be a flaw or a particular sin in your life. I mean, maybe it's just a, a bad attitude, some sort of cherished secret sin, like you would be absolutely appalled if someone knew that each week you kind of do this. It's your escape. I mean, you work really hard. After all, you deserve an escape, and you justify it that way. could be a dead fly, really causing a lot of problems. Maybe it's a bad habit, or it's a tendency to be irresponsible or unreliable, some sort of omission. Maybe you think, well, it's just a little relationship that I've got on here. A little flirtation at the gym or at work. It's not a big deal. Maybe you think it's like a little padding of the expense account, a little edge in your voice. Remember this, a little thing can ruin everything. It just takes a few dead flies to completely destroy the perfumer's oil. Why is it? Why is it that way? Well, let's take a look here. Look at verse 2. He says, what, what's needed, what is needed is strength, and God will provide it. Look at verse 2. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Now, if you're thinking like, whoa, there's a verse for the Republican Party, okay? Hey, this is not a political statement. God's not a Republican or a Democrat. He's a theocrat. I, he is in charge. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. This has nothing to do with that. Actually, what it's appealing to is the fact that to the right hand, that would be kind of a Hebrew's way of referring to the place of strength, of skill, of favor, of blessing. That Most people are right-handed. It's the position of strength. And he says the wise individual goes to strength, goes to wisdom. The left hand was considered a place of weakness. And you see that actually portrayed in the Bible. Now, if you're a lefty, okay, you've got my sympathy here. But this really has nothing to do whether you're right-handed or left-handed. This has everything to do to where do you go for direction in life. Do you want to know what is the difference between those who are wise and those who are foolish? What is the difference maker? It's right there in verse 2. It is the direction and devotion of your heart. You see that verse 2? It's a wise man's heart. It's not the organ that's beating in your body, but the, the heart is a reference to one's will, mind. It speaks of one's emotion, where they make their choices, where they make their decisions. He says, a wise man's heart directs him toward the place of strength, of wisdom, 
where they're going to find skill. But the foolish man's heart, well, he just, he's not really interested in what God has to say. He's not really even interested in his strength. So he goes to the place of weakness. I want you to know that growing in wisdom is a heart matter. Anybody can have it. When he talks about fools, it's talking about those who have really rejected the honor of God. They're not maturing in his truth. It's not so much about that they're deficient in their intellect. What it is is they're just not going to God. They're not integrating his truth into their life. It all has to go with what you want. What is driving you at a heart level? And so, you know, what, what you believe and where you go, where your heart directs you to, I want you to know it's going to be manifested in your life. Let me just explain this, how it works. You see, we come to a body of understanding. God wants us to know him, know truth, know morality, have the understanding of what is right and wrong, have his values. That is one of the reasons why he has given his word. His word shapes our comprehension. And it is from your understanding, that's where your convictions come. What you believe, your attitudes, your values, all come from what you know. And you and I, bottom line, always live out our convictions. I mean, you may say, well, I believe this and this or that. But that's only true if you actually do it. Because your convictions are what you really do believe. And you know what? What you believe is going to be manifested in life. Look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Whether he's, whether he's walking on a literal road or kind of the metaphorical road of life, you need to know that your outward actions, if you are a fool, will demonstrate your inward emptiness. And that's the case of this foolish individual. He doesn't have God's principles. He's not really interested in God's morality. He doesn't go to places of strength. And hence it's manifested. So let me just ask you, are there any dead flies that need to be taken out of the perfume of your life? Is there a relationship that's going in the wrong direction or a habit or, or your escape or are you watching something that's really, it's kind of setting you going in the wrong direction? Or you have a particular pattern. What you want to do is, verse 2, direct your heart to the right, to wisdom. God, I need you, and I need your truth. And I want you to know, it's time to get the dead flies out before you wreck everything. And wisdom, wisdom will give you that strength. Look at this. Wisdom not only brings strength, but wisdom cultivates composure. Look at verse 4. It is the ruler's temper. If, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. So this is advice in dealing with difficult superiors. You got somebody who is a fool and they're acting like it and they're in positions of authority. They're a supervisor, whether you've got them at work or they're uh, involved in government at some level. And they act like fools and they experience the consequences of fools. But just because the supervisor or the leader is acting foolishly doesn't mean that you have to follow suit. Oh, man, the guy in charge or the gal that's leading us, she's acting like a fool. So I may as well follow suit and start acting like a fool as well. No, wisdom will cultivate composure. And I want you to know that when you see this, you feel like, oh, man, I... I I've got to get myself out of this situation, you know. This, this person, they, they made a bad decision, and I'm out of here. And you think that life is going to be better on the other side of the septic tank. It likely will not. There's fools everywhere. And a lot of them are in positions of high authority. Look what this text says. 
Take it to heart. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position. Because composure, composure has the idea that you can lessen or relieve or mitigate or alleviate something. Composure allays great offenses. Don't run away in panic retreat. You need to learn how to calm down, to breathe. Don't quit. Don't abandon your position. There's a lot of folks that just like, ah, they did something or they're, they're, they don't like me or my boss is treating me poorly in this situation here. And so it's just like, you just like create a great fuss. You start barking, you're making all these noises and stuff like that, and you run away. Lots of people can just operate on their emotions and on their feelings. But it takes wisdom to have composure. Don't, don't like just be reacting, but ask God for wisdom. Don't abandon your position. So let me just tell you practically what this looks like. Ask God for wisdom. What does wisdom look like in this situation? Exercise discretion. What you want to do is, is look how you can calm the situation. Anybody can work it up into a frenetic frenzy. But how could you be used by God to calm the situation? And then, when the timing is right, ask insightful questions. Offer considerations of other courses of action or healthier ways of looking at the situation. I want you to know that whoever can do this becomes extremely valuable. Lots of people can fly off the handle and run off of the mouth and, and just operate on a feeling level and just add to the, the chaos. But it takes a wise man or a wise woman to have composure to actually handle the situation well. You may find that that person that had these things against you or is acting foolishly, you may find you help them to help lead them to a better way of living. Let me show you something else why you and I want wisdom and want to forsake foolishness. Look at verses 5 through 7. Wisdom values competence. He says, verse 5, There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an heir which goes forth from the ruler. He says, I have seen an heir. This has the idea of something done without proper consideration. And it's led to harm and damage or injury. And he says, I have seen an evil under the sun. And he's going to explain it. Verses 6 and 7. It's come forth from a ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. And I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. And what he's saying here is, I have seen situations where people have been placed in inappropriate places, in inappropriate positions. Now, he's not saying, well, if you're, if you're rich, you're just automatically wise. No, I think what he's using here is metonymy, okay? It's like one, like rich, is symbolizing those who are wise. And like the book of Proverbs tells you, listen, if you're wise, it's likely you're going to be doing all right because you're making good decisions, good business decisions. You're thinking things clear, clearly and thoughtfully. But what he's really talking about here is not so much that, that you're rich. He's using that as metonymy. Like, like if I said like the scepter, you understand like sovereignty or the crown, you know, that represents like sovereignty or the queen or the king. That's what he's saying here about the rich. Now, he also, I want to make sure that you remember, remember Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13. You can be poor 
and can be wise. Remember Ecclesiastes 4.13, it says, A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. He's like, you can be poor and wise. You don't want to end up like a king who is foolish and can't receive instruction. But foolish people, he's saying there, should not be in positions of leadership. What happens is when you have wisdom, you value competence. And what he's showing here is that foolish management is going to have dire consequences because they're going to put people that really shouldn't be in these high levels of position and authority, and they make them the decision makers. If a ruler has incompetent advisors and he puts people that really don't have the training, the skills, the know-how, and the desire in positions of great influence and responsibility, you should expect high levels of inefficiency, dysfunction, and maybe even social upheaval. Wherever it is, government, in business. You see, if you want to be led well, you have to value wisdom. This is something that American culture ought to figure out. If we want to be led well in this country, what you and I need to value is what? Wisdom. No, we value, well, who can make the, the biggest quip? Who can make them look like a fool? Who's got, this, the, who's got the cool factor going on? And who seems to be the hippest person or the most likely that we'd see in Hollywood? We're going to want them to be our leaders. I want you to know, friends, that is a dangerous situation. That's not wisdom. Wisdom values what? Competence. It's very unfortunate. But if you want an example of what verses 6 and 7 look like, that you got foolishness on display and its consequences... All you have to do is read about Solomon's son, Rehoboam. When Solomon passes away, Rehoboam takes over. And he consults, you know, Solomon's, his dad's advisors, and they tell him what to do, and they give him some real good wisdom. But he's got some friends, man. These fools that he's been running around with are like, oh, no, you mean like like really miserable folks to show who's boss and who's in charge. And Solomon, you know what he does? He metaphorically, he takes the wise individuals and says, you know what? You're just going to be walking around. He takes all those fools and he puts them on horses. You're going to be the new leaders of the land. And what happened is he watched the disintegration of the country and the people paid the price. How come? He didn't read his daddy's book. He didn't read this, these verses and the people paid the price. But I'll tell you what wisdom does. Wisdom values competence. Let me show you what else wisdom does. Wisdom promotes success. Look at verses 8 and following. He's going to give you a series of illustrations, and it's going to emphasize this point. Think before you act, or think it through. I want you to know that this is probably one of the most important principles you could ever have in your life. Think before you act, think it through. And he's going to give you a bunch of illustrations to show why this is the way to go. This is the path of wisdom. And so let's take a look at this first one here. Verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it. So he's talking about a guy who digs a pit. They dig a pit for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they dig a pit for like to dig a well. Or they would dig a pit to store their grain. Or if they wanted to capture a large animal, they'd dig a pit and they'd kind of cover it up. And they would capture this animal. They'd try to run the animal into the pit. They'd catch it. And, you know, there's nothing malicious about digging a pit. You see, but the guy is foolish. He digs the pit, but he falls into the very pit that he made. 
he's either overconfident or he's just not thinking, but he just falls into the pit and it injures him. Or look what else he says, verse 8. And a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. So they had walls that divided their fields. You have walls in your house. And maybe he's trying to establish a doorway or kind of a gateway between these fields. Instead of inspecting to see, like, you know, snakes like to hide out in cool rocks and crevices and kind of look on the other side like, no, no, it just plows ahead. He doesn't think about it, doesn't think it through. He just starts taking out rocks. And he sticks his hand in there and a copperhead bites him and kills him. Okay? What's the problem here? He's not exercising wisdom. And he keeps going. There's other examples, like verse 9. He says, he who quarries stones may be hurt by them. You know, if you're, if you're going to be quarrying a stone out and that rock is going to be falling, you might want to figure out where you're going to be before the rock starts falling so it doesn't end up on you and hurt you. That's just wisdom. But you see, if you're a fool... You're not thinking about that. Like, oh, I really want that rock. Man, it'll look good in my backyard. And you're like chopping it out and <laughs> next thing you know, it falls on you. And now you're dealing with your broken leg or your crushed pelvis. Or he gives another illustration. You want to think it through. Like, think it through if you're like chop- chopping down trees. Look at what he says, verse 9. And he who splits logs may be endangered by them. You need to understand that tree is going to fall. Or when it's down, you're going to split that log and you're going to make boards out of it? Why? You can injure yourself if you're not exercising safety. You're not processing correctly. So, like the axe head can fall, you know, actually come off. I remember one time I was actually chopping a piece of wood and the axe head literally went sailing, like using this old axe. Man, I should have checked that. What if it would have hit that kid over there? See, you got to think it through. Or he's saying, you know, like it. If you're, if you're chopping wood, you've got to think about how to do that and do it well and right. Or you end up like chopping up your own leg. And then you notice what else he says. Hey, listen, if the blade is dull, wisdom says to sharpen it. Look what he says, verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. See, wisdom tells you, you got a dull blade, you should what? Sharpen. Oh, man, you got so many smart people. This is so good. That's right. You sharpen the blade. That makes sense because, you know, if you don't, it's like you're beating the wood with a hammer. That's the hard way of doing things. What you want to do, you want to work smarter, not harder. And if you want to work smarter, you want wisdom and God will give it to you. But you got to apply it. And so he's saying, you want to make sure your tools are sharp. That's the wise way of doing things. And that's true of physical tools that you use. But if you're in a position where you're using your head and your heart a lot, I mean, like, much of what you do, whether in your family or in your occupation, requires you to use your head and your heart a lot, then you want to make sure that it is sharp. Friends, you've got to figure out how to bring recovery and renewal and restoration. Otherwise, what's going to happen is not only you're going to pay the price because you're working with dull tools, the folks that you're working with, your clients, your patients, they're counting on you to be your very best, but you don't really care about your tools so much. And so you're offering them far less. It's going to be painful for you. It's the hard way. It may have a lot of consequences for a lot of others. And then he gives this illustration in verse 11. He keeps stressing this theme. You want to work smarter, not harder. You want to have sharp tools. 
He starts talking about a snake charmer in verse 11. You're like, what in the world? How random is that? Look at it, verse 11. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Now, snake charmers were popular in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, and uh, they're kind of going out of fashion here. But let me just kind of explain what this works. You've seen them. You got this guy, and he's, he's the snake charmer, right? And he's got this basket of venomous snakes. And he has this pongee at this instrument he plays. And he kind of goes back and forth. And all of a sudden, these snakes come out of the basket, you know? And everybody's like, whoa, look at that. These venomous snakes. And, and what happens? You know that snakes don't have external ears. They feel the vibrations in the bones in their head. And that guy and that pongee, that little musical thing, and he's going back and forth like this. That snake thinks like this is a predator. And it gets in a defensive pose. And it's, it's, it's washing. And what he's saying here, and in case you're like thinking like, hey, that sounds like a pretty good career choice. I want you to know it's hard to get life insurance. And there are no major universities or tech schools that are giving you a degree in snake charming. But I want you to understand that this verse right here, he's emphasizing the point that he's been trying to make all along. It's one thing to know how to charm the snake. It's another to do it. It's not enough to know how to charm the serpent. You've got to apply your knowledge before you're bitten and you lose your job and maybe your life. That's where wisdom comes into play. I mean, let's, let's just apply this. I think we could take almost any one of you and bring you up here and say, hey, could you give us some really good biblical principles, some wisdom on parenting or sexuality or relationships or work, um, friendships. Could you, could you help us out? Give us some biblical principles. And I bet everybody could come up here like, well, you should do this, this, and this. The Bible says really avoid this. This will cause a lot of heartache in your life. And, you know, you'd be totally on. But wisdom comes not only from knowing it, it comes from applying it. I can assure you there are a lot of Bible-believing Christians that know the right thing to do, but have been bitten by the snake. They didn't apply it. And they're paying the tuition in their lives. You see, they didn't put the wisdom to use. And how about you? Is there an area of your life or a situation where you know the right thing to do, but you're not doing it? This text says, you want to be wise. You ask this question, is it wise? I can assure you, God is going to give you the answer. You want wisdom and you want to forsake folly. Let me show you something else. Look at verses 12 through 14. Wisdom guides one's speech. Look what he says, verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. You see, a wise individual, they're going to God. They're going to his word. They're going for strength. They're going to the position of the right. Remember verse 2? And their speech is gracious. It's favorable. It's esteem. The fool, on the other hand, you see the lips of a fool? They consume him. His words, her words, are self-destructive. You see, if you want to be wise... Why, God will give you wisdom so that you can use your speech for building people up, for encouraging them, for engaging individuals, explaining things, equipping folks, 
That's gracious speech. Your words are helpful. Your words motivate, give inspiration, give insight, instruction. But on the other hand, though, you can be a fool and your words can literally be consuming. You know how it is. It's the individual that just doesn't realize the power of the tongue. You know, it's interesting. The Bible talks a lot about your words, your mouth. Your words can be like a weapon of war. They can be like a fire. Remember James chapter 5 or James chapter 3? Or, or like a poisonous beast. Your words can either be a blessing or they can be a destructive. But it all goes back to the orientation of your heart. But for the fool, his words are self-destructive. It's kind of like this. I think it. I'm going to say it. I feel it. And I'm going to say it. There is no filter. And there's going to be a lot of consequences for that kind of life. But wisdom, you know what wisdom will do? It'll guide one's speech. Look what he says. Verse 13. For the fool, that fool's words consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly. And the end of it is wicked madness. From beginning to end, it starts off foolish. It ends up completely wicked and mad. And look at verse 14. And yet the fool multiplies his words. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. But the fool seems to think that he's got the market on that. And he'll just like start talking about things or things that she doesn't understand. They like to hear the sound of their own voice. They're moving their mouth. That is their M.O. And he says, friends, you don't want to be like that. You see, wisdom will guide your speech. Did your dad tell you this? My dad would say this on different occasions. He says, you know, it's better to be thought of a fool than to open up your mouth and remove all doubt. Did your dad tell you that? My dad would tell me that. And so I was a very quiet child. You know, I didn't, I just, didn't just kidding. But I tell you, there have been a lot of times it's been helpful to learn to keep your mouth shut. It may not be wise to speak or to say those things. And that's what he's saying here. You know, if you can learn to control your mouth, if you can learn to go to God for wisdom on your tongue, James chapter 3 says you can control your entire body. But it all starts out with the strongest, strongest muscle in your body, and that is your tongue. If you, uh, if you want just the absolute best advice and teaching on this, go to James chapter 3. You might want to read it because it will help you understand just how powerful it is. Your mouth can be used for blessing. Or for destruction. But again, the choice is yours. It is the orientation of your heart. Look what else wisdom does. Wisdom makes leaders a blessing. Look at verse 15. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. And kind of what he's doing here is like humor. You see, the fool, he's talking about things he doesn't even understand. He's always running off of the mouth. But he doesn't even know how to get to his own home, okay? He's like, okay, why would you want to follow a guy who can't even get to his own house? But the fool, though, you know what? He goes about his work in such a way, it is so inefficient. It is not smart. He hasn't thought it through. It's certainly not safe. He's injuring himself. He's injuring others. He's doing things the hard way. He is totally weary. And he doesn't even know how to get back to the city. And cities were well marked. It was probably a likely a path that he should have known, but he doesn't know it. And notice what he says about the fool. He says, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. You don't want to follow a leader who doesn't know where to go and how to get there. You don't want to follow a leader who is just exercising foolishness and not demonstrating wisdom. 
You don't want to have a person who is in charge, who is a lad. And this would be a word used for like an adolescent boy. And he's not necessarily talking about chronological age as much as he's talking about immaturity. You do not want to have a foolish, immature individual being your leader. You don't want it at work. You don't want it in your church. You certainly don't want it in your family. And it'd be a great idea if we didn't have it in our country. You want what? Wisdom, right? And so he says, wisdom makes leaders a blessing. You want to see what that looks like? He says, verse 17. You got the fools. They're, they're like feasting in the morning, man. They're starting to party really early on. But verse 17. Blessed are you. You want to be happy? You want to experience honor? Verse 17. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. You see, you want to have wise leaders that are concerned about the development and the defense of the people. They're concerned about dignity, dignity for the work. Dignity for the people that they're working with. They're eating not for their own selfish desire. They're eating for strength so they can do their job well. It's the wise leaders, wherever you find them, that are putting resources to work for the betterment of people, the betterment of the country, the betterment of the organization, and not for drunkenness. And that's what he's saying. Wisdom makes leaders a blessing. You go to God for wisdom You become a wise leader in your home, in your church, in your community, at your job, in our government. And friends, you are going to be a blessing because people thrive under wise leadership. But the fool, on the other hand, he's not interested in governing well or leading well. When you have foolish people leading, get ready for the consequences. If you want to see what that looks like, look at verse 18. Through indolence. The rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. That word indolence is the word for laziness, inactivity resulting from a dislike of work. You know, you ever heard of, well, he or she's afraid of work? That's indolence. Laziness. They're, they're just not going to involve themselves. Hey, that's too much work. That, I, I'm not interested in working that hard. Friends, if you've got leaders like that wherever, get ready for significant consequences here. The house is literally falling apart. The rafters are sagging. The house is leaking. But the leaders, they they can't, they don't care. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the skill. They don't have the competence. And they don't have the desire to do anything about it. So they'll throw out a few words to placate individuals. Oh, we're looking at this and we're doing the very best we can, you know. And, And then they just go back to their parting. You know what I'm saying? And what happens is the people pay the price. What is needed is wisdom. You see, wisdom makes leaders a blessing. You see, immature people, they enjoy the privileges and ignore the responsibilities. Mature individuals, what they do is they actually see the responsibilities as a privilege. It is a responsibility and it is a privilege for me to lead, to invest, to help you grow. That's what the good leader thinks. But not so for the fool. You see, dysfunctional leadership leads to the, to the dismantling of who they lead and what they lead. The house is literally falling apart. But if you got a fool, fools in leadership, what did you expect? But wisdom 
Wisdom makes leaders a blessing. And let me show you one other thing. Look how Solomon concludes chapter 10. Do you want wisdom? That's what he is doing in this chapter. He says, you want wisdom. You want to forsake foolishness. And wisdom will also help you hold your tongue. Look at verse, well, I, I, want to, I missed verse 19. I've I got to go back there. Notice what the motto is for the fool. Men prepares a meal for enjoyment and wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. This is what they believe. Eat all you can, enjoy all you can, and get all you can. And when he says that money is the answer to everything, if you don't have God as the one that you worship and your source of wisdom, then money becomes that alluring idol. And you really think that if I've got money, I can do whatever I want. I can solve whatever problem. And you're going to be sorely disappointed. Wisdom makes leaders a blessing. And wisdom will also help you hold your tongue. What happens when you've got terrible leadership? What should you do? Should you just like rip them apart? Well, why don't you read verse 20 before you open your mouth? Look at this. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. And in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. You got bad leadership? Well, this verse says, you know what? You might want to be careful about what you say. You ever heard this phrase, like, well, a little bird just told me? Ever heard that? That's where it comes from. Verse 20, right here. You see, what happens is, when you let it fly, it has a way of going out. Like, these walls, they have ears. Loose lips sink ships. They also sink careers and friendships. Don't get the idea like, well, I'm just saying this in my comfort of my own house or with these friends here in this restaurant. Friends, it just has a way of coming out. Wisdom says, you know what? I'm going to exercise discretion. Sam Rayburn, a politician from Texas, passed away years ago. He said this quote, Among my most prized possessions are words that I have never spoken. Mm. Among my most prized possessions are words I have never spoken. And that's what chapter 10 is doing. It's saying, listen, you want wisdom, you want to forsake foolishness. And you know, uh, maybe we're going through this and you're like, oh my, man, I'm, I'm seeing wisdom and I want you to know that I have violated a lot of those things. Do you know that God is in the business of bringing redemption from wreckage That's what he does. And that's why he has given us Christ. Christ not only gives us forgiveness of our sins, he pays the price for all of our wrongdoing. Christ gives us wisdom. You know, Solomon is really wise. People would come from all over. Remember the queen of the south? She came to hear Solomon's wisdom. Jesus spoke of this and he said, you know, Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says this, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. If you want wisdom, yeah, you want to read up on Solomon, but what you really want is Christ. You're going to find forgiveness. You're going to find life. You're going to find direction. In fact, he gives us his Holy Spirit to give us counsel and wisdom so that we get the right answer when we ask the question, is it wise? And I want to just throw something out there. If, uh, if you've had a setback, don't let it be your downfall. Maybe you're hearing this and you're like, man, <laughs> I have seriously blown it up here these last few months. Don't let that be your downfall. 
don't know if you watched the Winter Olympics, but there's this uh, cross-country skier in the 30-kilometer event. His name is Simon Hegstead Kruger. He's one of these Norwegians. The Norwegians are just conquering at the Olympics. And this guy, Simon, at the very beginning, here's a picture of it. At the very beginning of the 30-kilometer race, you know, that's about 18.6 miles, he falls down. We're not exactly sure where it happens. A couple of Russians run him over. He takes a, he gets hit in the head with one of the ski poles, and they fall, these Russians fall on top of him. They're all getting back, and everybody is just zooming by. And so he's trying to pick himself up. He's got a broken ski pole. I mean, everybody thinks, like, your Olympics are over. I mean, you may as well just give up. There's no way you're even going to catch the guys, right? You're just going to be in the last place. Oh, no. Simon, he just starts skiing with his one pole and his broken pole, and he's going. He eventually gets another pole. And he, even though he's way far in the back, he keeps going. And he actually, he eventually catches the last guy in the pack. And he systematically works his way through every, 67, every single one of them. And then he finds himself in the front, and he just keeps going. In fact, here's a picture. He is so far ahead of the rest of the pack and he wins. It is one of the greatest comebacks in Olympic history. And I tell you this because, you know what? You may have fallen flat on your face. You've taken a pull to the head. You've been run over by some Russians. And you're in last place. I don't want you to give up. You want to ask this question, is it wise? God's going to give you the strength. He is going to help you. And he wants you to live in the joy of of a wise life and think about how good it'll be. So friends, before you act, ask this, is it wise? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing chapter of the Bible. How good it is for us to see wisdom on display and we need it. And maybe there's someone who's come here today and foolishness has really been kind of the flag they've been flying for a long time. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin and I trust in Christ. I need forgiveness, and I believe in Jesus, the resurrected one. And for all of us, Lord, we want to walk in your ways. We want to experience joy, maturity, everything you've desired in this life. So help us to ask, is it wise? And just keep giving us the right answers. For your glory and your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.